Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter number 12. 1 Samuel chapter number 12. And uh, what a blessing, I'll tell you. I'm, I enjoyed the snow this past week, but I praise the Lord for sending a little rain to wash this snow away. Amen. And uh, and the salt off the road. Somebody say amen to that. So it, uh, we, we all praise the Lord whatever He gives us. Amen. Find something in it to praise Him for. Uh, there's always something we can find to praise Him for. Uh, and and what we what we can praise him for may not be bigger than what we can complain about. Uh, there may be times that there'd be something bigger we can complain about than what we can praise him for. Uh, but you know that's when we have to make a choice: what we're going to do. Are we going to praise him? Amen. Uh, we we and we alone decide whether we're going to praise the Lord. And you might say, "Well, preacher, I'm facing all this and I'm dealing with all this. It's so big. It's looming." over my life like a shadow, casting a shadow over my life. And, and this little thing that I found to praise God for, it's it, it's not very big, it's not very much. Yeah, you just wait until you start praising Him for that thing. And then all of a sudden, like a flame that grows in the midst of the darkness, it can drive all that other discouragement out. I'm not fussing, I'm not saying we, we don't get discouraged. I get discouraged, you do too, we all do at times. But I'm glad we can make the decision, even our discouragement, we're going to praise Him, amen. He's worthy of our praise, isn't He? 1 Samuel chapter number 12, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 6. Now, we, uh, in our text, we have come to the final days of the public office and ministry of Samuel the prophet. And he is turning the reins of the leadership of the kingdom over from himself and his sons over to, over to the newly appointed king uh, over Israel, Saul. And the Bible says in verse number 6 that Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Vedan and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelled safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, Ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold, the king whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Dial me back a little bit, whatever's dialing me up. Let's dial me back. I don't think they can handle that much of me. Amen. Uh, verse 16, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. 
For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. But if he shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Lord, what a blessing to be with these precious people. We've come today because we love you, Lord. We've come today because we want to hear from you. We want to know what the truth of the Word of God is. Lord, we want the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Lord, if anybody's coming, that's not been the reason. I pray that you'd do a work in their heart this morning that would make that the reason. May our focus be not on one another, Lord, not certainly on me as the preacher or the singers or the choir, but may our focus be on the Lord Jesus Christ today. And may our heart's desire be that we should be found in greater obedience unto you. Now I pray that the Spirit of God would take his sword in hand, the Word of God, and wield it in our lives. And I pray that you would show us if there's any areas where we're not in obedience unto you, Lord, any areas where we have allowed things to crowd you out of our affections and our loyalties. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, not, not to give up, not to quit, not to lay down but to instead come to you, put that under the blood, get up and go on serving you. Let our life be a testimony of your grace and of your long-sufferingness and of your mercy. Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. May it honor and bless the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in him's name we ask it. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter number 12, as we've said, we are standing at a transitional moment for the children of Israel. Uh, they have never before had a king. And God has been their king instead of a human king, a visible, tangible king. God has been their king. He has led them. He has protected them. He has guided them. He has provided for them. But they have reached a moment in their national history where they have decided that no longer is God enough. They now want a physical king. They've watched other kingdoms and other nations march out to battle with a, a glorious king at the head of their armies and great banners, terrible and terrifying, flying behind them. And they've said, we want that. We want to be like what the other kingdoms are like. We want to do what they do. We want to have what they have. Can I just pause and say this? When the child of God begins to look around at the unregenerate world and say, I want what they've got, we are setting ourselves on a path for destruction. When we begin to desire and covet what the world has. Now, there are certain things that are not intrinsically wrong. The, the world drives cars. I don't believe it's wrong to want a car. The world wears clothes. And I don't believe it's wrong to wear clothes. Somebody say amen to that. But I do believe that uh, there is a danger in coveting things that the world has and saying, I want those because I want to be like the world that is around me. And that's what Israel was doing. We could say this this morning, that three important facts inform this passage. The first thing we notice is Israel's poor decision in verses 6 through 12. I know this is a good little chunk of scripture to read, but I want to give emphasis to something as we go back and read it. Look in verse number 6 with me. We'll begin there. Samuel said unto the people, it is, and underscore this, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you 
and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried unto, here we see it again, the Lord, and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerobel and Beden and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelled safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, O Lord, help us. Is that what it says? No. If you're following along in your Bible, that's not what they said. This is what they said. Nay, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Let me say the first thing that informs this passage is Israel's poor decision regarding the leadership of their life. You know, in your life and mine, when poor decisions happen, when we decide that we don't want to follow the Lord's leadership, when we want to have our own way or allow someone else to have sway and, and influence in our life and Israel's troubles, they, they did not begin at this moment, but certainly they always began when they quit letting the Lord be the king of their life. Listen to me, child of God, this morning, if you want trouble in your life, you just take the reins and the scepter and the authority away from God and put it in your own hands. And I promise you, trouble will soon follow. You want to have a life that is blessed, a life that enjoys the favor of God, not just positionally, but practically. You want a life that, that is pleasant, a life uh, that you have joy in, then you take that authority and you put it in God's hands and leave it with Him. They had made a poor decision. God had been good to them. He had delivered them out of Egypt. He had listened to their cries. He had answered their prayers. He had sent them deliverers. In fact, I would say this, and I love the way Samuel says it back in verse number 7. He says that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did to you and to your fathers. I'd say this, the Lord's done a lot of righteous acts for us. If we were to go back and read that history in our life, we could look at moment after moment that we got ourselves in a mess because we disobeyed the Lord, but we cried out to the Lord, and instead of Him holding it over our head, instead of Him holding it against us, He in mercy answered, and He delivered us, and He protected us, and He rescued us from the bad consequences of our bad choices over and over and over again. Let me just say, let me lift holy hands and say, God has been good to me in my life. He has cleaned up more messes than I could have ever imagined I would ever create, but I keep making them, and He keeps cleaning them up. He's been so good to me. And yet still often in my life, I make the same poor decision. Now the, the, the same episode has happened again. It's Groundhog's Day again. Their enemies have befell them because of their disobedience, and they should have done what they always did. They should have stopped and said, Lord, we've sinned, we've messed up, please deliver us. But instead... When Samuel comes to him, and I love the way this begins in verse 12, their statement to Samuel begins with the word nay. You say, preacher, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me this, that there was more to that conversation before that moment. When you answer the word no, you're replying to someone. And Samuel obviously had encouraged and exhorted the children of Israel to do as they always had done, to turn to God, to do what is right, to get their life correct, to submit their life to God. But instead of doing that, they say, no, not this time. This time we want to do things our way. This time we want to fix our own mess. And they say this, nay, 
but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You know, it's bad enough that they had rebelled against the Lord, but now they make it even worse by refusing the Lord's help. Well, I tell you, I don't know if Toby's preaching to anybody other than Toby this morning, but let me just preach to Toby a little while. How foolish I am in my life, and if you do this, and you probably do, how foolish we both are, that when we make a mess of things, and God extends a hand of mercy, instead of us accepting that and saying, Lord, you're right, I messed up, I sinned, please forgive me. How often do we say, no, thank you, Lord, I'll just fix this mess on my own. Uh, yeah, you'll fix it. You'll fix that mess real good. Same way you fixed the first mess. <laughs> Same way that you fixed up a big old mess. And you'll make it worse than it ever was. So Israel here makes a poor decision. They have sinned against the Lord. They have rejected God. Let me show you how good God is. Because it's not only Israel's poor decision that informs this passage, but it's also Israel's present situation in this moment. Verse number 13. Now I'll tell you what I would have said if I was God. I would have said, all right, just go wreck yourself then. Just go make a mess of your life and, and you'll just prove me right. Look what God says. Verse 13. Now therefore... Behold the king whom ye have chosen. He points over at Saul and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath set a king over you, just like you've asked. And he says this, if ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your father. What a gracious God we've got. This is what he says. He says, you've messed up, but failure is not final. And you can make the choice from this moment forward to do right and to please me. <laughs> I, listen, God's so much better to, to me than I would be to me. He's better to you than you would be to you. He's better to me than you would be to me and better to you than I would be to you. Because any of us would reasonably say, you've made this mess, now live with it. You've made your bed, now lie in it. But God instead says, you have messed up, you have done wrong, you have sinned, but I'm willing to help you get right and do right and live right if you'll make up your mind to serve me. See, the reality is this. We tell ourselves when we've sinned and messed up that there's nowhere to go but down. But that's a lie straight from the devil's lips. I don't care how you've messed up. I don't care what you've done. You have the decision right now in this moment to get your life right to ask God's forgiveness, to commit your life to the Lord, and to go on and serve Him and make your life count for His glory. See, they had made a bad decision, but now they had a present situation. What were they going to do with this decision? Now look at verse 16. God warns them something. It says this, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now this is an interesting miracle that takes place. And it would be tempting to just gloss over it, to read this as merely God expressing His power, expressing His miraculous ability. But there's something floating in the background here that I think is worth noticing. God could have done this in a thousand ways. Oftentimes when God wanted to display His presence and His power, if they had made a sacrifice as Elijah did on Mount Carmel, He would answer by fire. He would send a, a, a ball of fire from heaven, consume that sacrifice. God is very distinct and descript in the miracle He performs here. You notice how Samuel points out that it's wheat harvest on that day. 
You'll, you'll remember if you're a student of the Bible that when the Bible talks about rain in the land of Israel, it always talks about two wet seasons in the land. They'll talk about the former and the latter rain. And in between those rains, they would have the harvest time. And so it's not like here where it might be snowing two days ago and raining today. We might all be water skiing tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in Tennessee. In the land of Israel, the weather was much more consistent. And so it was not uncommon months on end for them to not get any appreciable rain. And it's evident on this day that it's not a rainy or cloudy day because they're out in the field harvesting on this very day. In fact, the last thing anyone could have imagined would have happened when they looked up at those beautiful blue skies was that thunder and rain would all of a sudden burst forth and ruin that day. It's interesting that God uses this miracle. And when He does this, the Israelites understand what God is saying because they, they reply that they had done great wickedness under the Lord in verse number 19. And Samuel says the reason God's doing this is to show you how great your wickedness is. The fact is it was very unusual to get rain in harvest season. Proverbs 26.1 sort of reinforces this. says, as snow in summer and as rain in harvest, so honor is not seemly for a fool. In other words, this was very unusual. It was a rare occurrence. What is God teaching them? I think He's teaching them this. It don't matter how blue the skies are, when God wants to send rain, He can send an absolute torrent. In other words, I think God is expressing to them, we've seen their poor decision, their present situation, but I think He's wanting to remind them of their precarious position. That there's going to be times when this King is reigning over you and you're going to think that the skies are beautiful and blue and clear and everything's going well. And God wants them to know that if that happens, it's not because of the king. It's because of their creator. It's not because of their potentate. It's because of their providential God. It's not because the king has provided that. It's because God has bestowed and blessed them with that. And likewise, He wants them to understand this. That though there may be beautiful blue skies in their life and everything may be going well, if they disobey the Lord, if they walk contrary to Him, He has the ability to break forth like a deluge upon their life and destroy them. He's wanting them to understand how much is at stake regarding the decision that they make. Can I tell you what we so often do when we sin? We almost, you can imagine, it's like we sort of stick our toe in the water. And if we don't immediately get scalded or freeze to death, we begin to sort of ease down into it. Very often we'll commit a sin and then we wait for the lightning bolt to strike. And then very often, because God is a gracious God, His judgment doesn't happen like that in our life. Oftentimes, He's long-suffering, and we, we may sin and, and feel like we've gotten away with it. Now, we don't get away with anything. Your sin will find you out. But we think because God doesn't just drop the hammer on us immediately, we must have got away with that. God wants them to understand that none of that is lost on Him, and they may feel like they are safe. They may feel like they are secure. But king or no king, if they walk in disobedience to him, they are asking for only heartache. Evidently, Israel understood this. When the people realized the gravity of their sin, they plead with Samuel to ask God's mercy for them. Verse 19, all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. Prior to this miracle, they didn't believe what they did was wrong. Or they at least believed that it was acceptable. But now that they've seen that God is displeased with them, that they have betrayed the faithfulness of God in their life, now they recognize this is a problem. We've messed up. We've sinned. And they asked Samuel, please plead to God for mercy. In light of the people's situation, Samuel replies and warns them 
not to persist in their disobedience. Look at verse 20. Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here's what Samuel says. You've messed up. There's no question you've messed up. You've sinned. God knows it. I know it. And you know it. But now you have a decision to make. Will this sin be a passing moment of disobedience and weakness in your life? Or will it be the beginning of a trail of disobedience and rebellion against God? We could say it this way, that Samuel warns the Israelites against leaping, you ever heard this phrase, out of the frying pan and into the fire. I want to preach to you on that thought this morning. You may have messed up, but don't make it worse. Don't leap out of the frying pan, because when you do, you're leaping only into the fire. How often are we tempted when we mess up in life to just caution to the wind and take a nosedive straight into despair, discouragement, and disobedience? I've got news for you. Listen, child of God, it don't have to be like that. You may have messed up, but you don't have to be messed up. You may have made a mistake, but you don't have to persist in that disobedience. I know we could all recount stories of people in our life who messed up, made a mistake, got into sin, allowed sin in their life, and it was the beginning moment where they then spiraled into a life of disobedience. I've stood beside the graves of people who were there because of the chastening of God, because they took that moment, made that decision, and spiraled into disobedience. But can I tell you this? We often don't notice the people that made the right decision. You know why? Because not as big a deal is made out of it. In fact, if you're here today in obedience to God in your life, I'm not going to say perfect obedience. There's always areas that we could be walking closer to God. But if you, on the whole, in your life today, you say, I'm, I'm in my relationship with God. I can pray to Him. I don't know of anything that is wrong in my life. I don't know of anything in my life that is sin, that is acknowledged and unconfessed. That is because you made the decision when you sinned to not stay in that sin and to instead get it right with God. So it tells me this, you may have messed up, but now you have a decision to make. And what decision are you going to make? I want you to notice five simple truths here that Samuel gives them of why they need to not leap out of the frying pan into the fire, why they don't need to make it worse, why they need to get their heart right, get their life right, get up, move on, go on, and serve God, and not allow themselves to be weighed down in the quicksand of their failures and disobedience. Notice verse 21 with me. Samuel has said to them, turn not aside in verse 20 from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And he, and he emphasizes it again. And turn ye not aside, he says this, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. Number one reason that you need to ask God's forgiveness, you need to get up, you need to move on, you don't need to indulge the sin that you have, have stumbled into, you don't need to indulge uh, the guilt that you feel. Instead, you need to ask God's forgiveness and get up and go on is because, number one, of the path that awaits you. You know what we all tell ourselves? We all tell ourselves that there's a little more fun sinning to do before we want to get right. Now, you may not be like me. I hope you're not. I'd be terrified to pastor a church full of people just like me. But if you're anything like me, I tend to view, and this is an incorrect perspective, but it, I'm being truthful with you, I tend to view my relationship with God like a slate. That whenever it is marred, whenever a mark has been made on it, the slate is marred. And until it's wiped clean, because I've gone to the Lord and confessed that and asked God's forgiveness, that mar is there. But here's the problem when you have that perspective. Why not draw a little more since it's already messed up? Why not go a little further? I mean, hey, you're already done messed up, made a mistake. 
Why not indulge a little bit in whatever that temptation or that sin is? Why not go a little further? You're going to wind up going to God anyway. He's going to wind up forgiving you anyway. So why not indulge that for just a little while? I'm confessing to you my own infirmity this morning. But can I tell you the reason why we should not do that? Because there's nothing but further heartbreak and sorrow and misery that waits down that path. Notice how he says this. He says, you'll go after vain things. That means empty. Can I tell you, sin won't fulfill you. It don't fulfill you on the front end or the back end. It don't, it don't fulfill you when it's just a little bit of your life. And it won't fulfill you when it is all of your life. Sin is an empty thing. It does not satisfy. It's like cotton candy, amen? It may taste good for a moment, but it ain't gonna, it ain't gonna add anything except pounds that we need to get rid of, amen? There's no substance to it. There's nothing meaningful in it. He says you'll go after vain things. And then he describes why they are vain. He says, which cannot profit nor deliver. When I think of that word profit, I think of things that benefit us, things that help us. And can I tell you this? You committing further sin is not going to help you one bit. It's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to add anything to your life. I know the devil and the flesh and the world all want you to believe that everybody out there that's having a good time is having a good time because they're living in sin. Now, you and I both know that all that glitters is not gold. We've seen the end of that story. Listen, we're not, we're not gentle little lambs that have not seen the heartbreak that sin does in people's lives. Why is it so hard for us to learn this? Listen, that down that road there is nothing that we need. You know, you look at the prodigal son and there wasn't a single thing that he took back with him from the far country except for scars and better sense. That was it. We don't have no, no report of any of glorious treasures that he procured while he was in the far country. We don't have any examples of, uh, of great culture that he experienced when he was in the far country. When he comes back, he comes back broken and bankrupt. The reason why is there's nothing down that road that can profit you. The devil tells you there is, but I'm sorry, there is not. There's no help down that path. Then I would say, number two, there is no healing down that path. He says this, those things that it's going to lead you to, they'll not deliver you. Now, this was very meaningful to the children of Israel. Remember the context here. He's just got through recounting the story, telling them the, the history. They've just looked at the scoreboard, and they've been reminded of all the times that they have messed up, uh, that they have uh, been broken in their sin, all the times uh, that they've been enslaved by their enemies. And time after time after time, when they asked God to deliver them, He delivered them. And now it says, you turn away from God, you're going to things that cannot deliver you. Listen, there's going to come a moment you're going to wake up and be tired of your sin. It happens to everybody. It may happen quickly. It may be a long, drawn-out process. But if you're a child of God and you have the Holy Ghost of God living in you, there will come a moment when you wake up and He speaks louder than the devil's whispers. And you are tired of your sin. Can I just tell you in that moment, it won't be any, it won't be any of those good time friends that can help you. It won't be any of those addictions that can help you. It won't be any of those indulgences that can help you. When that time comes, none of those things can deliver you. See, here's the truth. We think if we commit further sin, we'll feel better about the sin we've already committed. We're using it as a salve. We're using it as an anesthetic for the Holy Ghost prod. But the truth is, it cannot serve that purpose. It ain't going to make you feel better. It's only going to make you feel worse. You want help? You want healing? Go to the Lord. He's always given it to you. 
He's always provided it to you. From that first moment when you woke up in your heart and mind and saw that you were a broken, lost sinner on your way to hell and you came to Him and said, God, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm hopeless, please help me. And He heard, He bent His ear low, He extended His hand of mercy and He lifted you out of that miry pit. He's been, from day one, He's been the one. <laughs> from day one, He's been the one. He's always been the one that would take you back. I understand we don't lose our salvation. I understand that we don't sever that relationship with God. But when we have diminished our walk with the Lord, uh, He restoreth our soul. He's always been the one to listen. He's always been the one to forgive. He's always been the one to deliver. Why would we think that help and hope and healing could come from anywhere but Him? And yet still, the siren song of sin will call to us and tell us that somehow, not us, not this time, this time everything will be okay. I just I, let me be Samuel for a moment. I'm not like Samuel. I'm not as spiritual as Samuel. But since he ain't here, let me just take his place for a moment and tell you: you better turn back to the Lord and not try to put a king over your life that's not Him, because that king cannot deliver you. I would say because of the path that awaits. Look at verse number 22. He says this: for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. Preacher, why should I? Get up and go on and serve the Lord. Not only because of the path that awaits, but because of the promise that abides. Here's what Samuel says to him. He says, don't forget that you may have given up on the Lord, but the Lord has not given up on you. We like to imagine that our sin is so unique and proprietary that we have done unique, irreparable damage to our walk with the Lord. We like to believe that somehow, and I'm talking about usually when we wake up with that, that hangover of guilt in our heart and in our head, we somehow tell ourselves, and I don't know if it's a pity thing, I don't know if it's an excuse thing, but we tell ourselves, I have messed up too much. There's no way God can forgive me. But you know, that takes for granted one false thing. We're believing that somehow God was surprised by what we did. Truth is, there's nothing you do that takes God by surprise. What was it the old preacher said? Has it ever dawned on you that nothing's ever dawned on God? He knew about your sin before you knew about your sin. You're the one showing up late, not Him. He already knew. You're the one that just woke up and realized you messed up. He knew you messed up before the worlds were free. And, yea, I would say even when He saved you, He knew about that very sin you were going to commit. Now, if we love the Lord the way that we ought to, we're not going to take that as license and permission to do wrong. But we are going to take it as a token of His grace and of His immutable character and of His faithfulness. We're going to look at it and say, hey, listen, what He said still holds. He told me He loved me when I was a broken sinner. And what He said still holds. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that still holds. He said, any that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And that still holds all the things that He said to us. Those promises still abide. Why can we be sure of that? Well, notice first off, there's the promise of His presence. For the Lord will not forsake His people. And I like this next phrase. For His great name's sake. You know, any, any, any theological system that departs from the grace of God as the foundation for our salvation makes some fundamental errors regarding God's character. For a person to believe they can work their way to heaven, they have to believe that they somehow can stand in the place of God and, and perform actions so righteous that they would be accepted in the eyes of God. 
By the same token, for a person to believe they could lose their salvation is for them to suggest that they could be so righteous they could keep their salvation. For a person to believe that baptism could get them to heaven is for them to suggest that somehow God has vested His authority and His His proprietary uh, jurisdiction to save a man's soul in a, a, a puddle of water and in, in the decisions of a human being. All these things are predicated on these bad, erroneous, unbiblical concepts of God. Can I tell you this? In that moment when you've sinned and you've messed up and the flesh and the devil and the world whisper to you, that's it, you're broken, you're tainted, you're ruined, God's done with you, God's going to throw you away. That's to presume that the reason God ever saved us was because we were good in the first place. Fact is, He didn't save us because of us. He saved us because of Him. It is in response to the promise of His grace. He didn't save me because he, he's not he's not picking out a baseball team. He didn't look down and say, well, that boy can play right field. Let's save him. That's not how it works. No, he looked down and, and he saw who I was. He saw my frame, but I'm but dust. And he said, out of my abundant grace and love and mercy, I will save them. See, the fact is, it was never based on you keeping anything. It was always based on him keeping his promises. Therefore, you say, preacher, I've broken my promises. Aren't you glad your salvation is not based on your promises? It's based on His promises. And we see the promise of His presence. He said, I'm not going to leave you. But then notice this, He says, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. I see not only the promise of His presence, I see the premise of His pleasure. That's an interesting statement. It hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. What does that mean? God, knowing everything... In the decision to choose Israel as a nation or to choose Abraham and then his descendants, he was pleased with that choice. Have you ever made a decision and later on you thought, I'm not exactly pleased with that? You ever bought a car that was the greatest thing you ever saw till it pulled off the car lot? Then all of a sudden it starts smoking and, and shaking and jarring and, 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 and by the time it's towed home, you go, I'm just not pleased with that anymore. You ever ordered from a restaurant based on the pictures? If you have, I know you've been disappointed in life. But see, here's the marked difference between us and God. We don't know all things, but God knows all things. He knew what we were when He picked us off the menu. I'm careful how I say that. I understand He was willing to save any and all. But what I mean is He knew what we were when He saved us. He knew what we were whenever we were lost in our brokenness and sin. And the reason He is pleased with that choice is not because of who we are, but because of the one that has made us well-pleasing in His sight. You remember what the Bible says in Isaiah 53? It says about, uh, about the Lord and Him viewing Calvary. It hath pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It said that when He saw the travail of His soul, He would have pleasure in that. That doesn't mean He enjoyed the suffering of Christ. But what it means is prior to that, He was not pleased with the condition of man. But now in light of Christ dying on the cross of Calvary, being made a substitute for us, now He can be pleased with man standing with Him. He can look at man standing because of what Jesus did on Calvary. If we'll come to Christ and ask His forgiveness, He can say, I'm pleased to have you as my child. Not because of what He's done, but because of what He has done. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. In other words, the whole basis of this has nothing to do with us. We say, preacher, I can't get up and move on because I have messed up. I have broken my, my relationship with the Lord. It is not what it used to be. I have messed up 
God doesn't want me anymore. All that is nothing but self-gratifying pity. Because it's not based in reality. The reality is He didn't save you because you was great. Because we're not great. He saved you because He is great. And because He is gracious. And He was not pleased with you because you're really hitting your stride. He was not pleased with you because you're, you're really nailing all of the, all of the objectives. He was pleased with you because Christ made you pleasing in His sight. Therefore, even when we mess up, we don't have to worry that those promises, His promises, are broken. Not only that, look at verse number 23. I love this. Samuel says, moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. This is an interesting dynamic. Samuel has been a transitional figure in the nation of Israel. He was the, uh, the, the first prophet, national prophet, over the nation of Israel. When we think of the Old Testament prophets, and I understand Moses was a prophet, I understand Enoch was a prophet, but as a national office in the sense of a man whose job, unlike Moses, whose responsibility it was to lead them through the wilderness and, and, and to be dealing with every area of public life, Samuel's office was a spiritual office. And his responsibility was to, to be a voice for God to the people and a voice for the people to God. Likewise, it's interesting because he is the uh, uh, one of the only prophets, only a handful in the Old Testament, that were not only prophets, but they were priests. Not only that, he is the representative of God during a period of time when God is king over the nation of Israel. In fact, we could say that in his capacity, he almost functioned as prophet, priest, and king. Now there is a closing moment to his office, and here's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going away. But though I go away, here's two things I'm not going to quit doing. One, he says, I'm not going to quit praying for you. I'm going to keep praying, praying for you. Every, every day I talk to God, I'm going to lift your name up to the Lord. He said, here's the second thing I'm not going to quit doing. I'm not going to quit teaching you as God gives me opportunity the truth of the Word of God. Now, let's see if we can just use our sanctified imagination. Let's see if we can squint a little and see if there's more here. So here's Samuel. He is the first prophet over the land of Israel. He is the last prophet before a king steps onto the throne. So, so he uniquely stands in this situation where he is the representative of the king who is God. And he is also a priest. So he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. He has had an earthly ministry in the nation of Israel. But now he is leaving that earthly ministry. And now his ministry will be solely the ministry of intercession and instruction for the people of God. You know who that sort of reminds me of? That sort of reminds me of the Lord Jesus. Because he was prophet, he was priest, he was king, he had an earthly ministry of three and a half years in the land of Israel, but then when that ministry was completed, he left that place, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and the Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. In other words, Samuel says, you don't have to keep messing up. You don't have to keep going in disobedience. I know you've messed up, and I know you're afraid God is angry with you, but I promise you this. I will pray to the Lord. I will intercede on your behalf. I will teach you what is right. We will pick up and move beyond this as a nation, and we will go on to glorify God in the way that we live. It's a reminder of this. Preacher, why shouldn't I just keep living this way? Why shouldn't I just give up? I've already messed up. I ought to just keep going. No, listen, you, you, ought, you ought to get it right because of the priest that advocates for you. You, you, ought to, you ought to get up and move on because there's one that will help you get up and move on. 
I, I see his intercession. He says, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm glad, listen, even in my life when I've messed up, when I've sinned, and when I should have no right to approach to God, I can pray and I can ask forgiveness and I can talk to the one who is always and ever in his presence. And he will make intercession for me. Here's how John said it. My little children, these things write out unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You've messed up, but you still have a way to come to God and ask for forgiveness. Not only his intercession, but his instruction. Samuel says, I will teach you the good and the right way. He says, you've messed up, but I'm going to teach you how to avoid that mistake the next time. Now, I'll be abundantly clear. There is no question we are going to continue to make mistakes and sin and mess up in our life. But that don't mean we have to keep making the same mistake a million times. Uh, it's true until we're given a glorified body, sin is going to be a reality in the human experience. But that don't mean we have to be like a hamster on a wheel. That don't mean we have to keep replowing the same ground. We can make progress in our Christian walk. We can determine, hey, I messed up. But I don't have to make that same mistake again. And so Samuel says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you the right way to live. And I'm glad to report to you, hey, listen, not only do we have his intercession, but we also have his instruction. We have the ability to go to the Word of God and see what happened in our life. How did I wind up in this situation? What did I do? What could I have done differently? And how do I adjust my life in such a way as to make this less likely the next time that I face temptation? I'd say this. God's given us everything we need to get up and go on and serve Him the next day. Not only because of the priest that advocates, but because of the precepts that apply. Look at verse 24. He says this, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. This is interesting. Samuel, no doubt, was a, a keen student of the Old Testament law. And if you've studied your Bible, you know that there's some something around 600 and some odd commandments in the Old Testament. But there are these moments in the Word of God when the the spirit of the law is distilled down and presented to us in like, like in a nutshell, in an encapsulated way. And this is one of those moments. When he says, I will teach you the good and the right way, he's saying, I'm going to teach you the Word of God. But then he summarizes what that is. And it's very interesting the way God describes it. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. Here he gets to the heart of the matter with us. He does not delve into the distinct, particular statutes of the Word of God here, but he gets down to what is expected of us regarding our spiritual perspective. And he says, here's what God asks of you, that you love Him and reverence Him, that you take Him seriously. You know, part of the reason we get into the messes we do is we just don't take God seriously. We don't take seriously His Word. We don't take seriously His sacrifice for us on Calvary. We don't take seriously His wisdom and the impact it has on our life. We just play loose with our life. And then we begin to make mistakes. It says, take God seriously. Reverence Him and love Him and serve Him in truth with all your heart. In other words, and man, I'm, I'm careful to say this. This sounds like such a junior T-ball statement. I'm I am against sports where everyone gets a trophy. Somebody say amen. But there is a truth here. He, he says this, do your best. Do your best. Be sincere. Love the Lord. Take Him seriously. Take the Word of God seriously. And do your best to serve Him. And we do that, and He will do the rest. Now, if we want to take that as license to live any old way we want and then call it doing our best, we're welcome to do it. And one day we'll answer to a God that sees our naked soul 
and have to give an account for the fact that we abuse that. But I, I, I do think we can distill it down. We, we oftentimes view it and say, well, preacher, how could I ever live the Christian life? There's so many things that are expected. No, not really. It's expected that you take God seriously, that you love Him sincerely, and that you do your best to serve Him. And if you do that, all those other commandments and truths and concepts and principles will flow out from that. But if you get those things right, then you've already plotted the course for success in your Christian life. In other words, Samuel says, here's why you need to keep serving, because he still desires our service. We say, God doesn't want me, I've messed up. We use messed up when God found you. So why would you think He doesn't want you now that you've messed up? The only person that's changed is not Him because He's the Lord God. He changeth not. The person that's changed is not Him. The person that's changed is us. We may not desire to serve Him, but I, listen, let me just serve notice on you. You may say, God don't want me no more. Tell yourself that if it makes you feel better and lets you sleep at night. But if you want to know the truth, God still wants you to serve Him with your life. But I'm damaged goods, preacher. Yeah. And all of us too. But preacher, I've messed up. Poor pitiful you. So have we. We all have. We're all broken. We're all messed up. We're all corrupt. Every one of us. We all have a rap sheet. Some of y'all really do. I mean, but, but, but I mean, we all, I might too. I don't know. <laughs> I can tell stories, but I'm saying we all have a history. We've all messed up. Every single one of us. Don't matter who you are. And you can either use that as an excuse to lay down and quit, or you can recognize that God still desires you to live for Him. Not only that, He says this, for consider how great things He hath done for you. Not only does He still desire our service, He still deserves our service. He still deserves it. If He desires it, bless God, He deserves it. He says this, think about all the good things God's done for you. How could we quit now? He's been too good to us. He's done so much for us in our life. And even though we might look at our life and view ourselves second class, and I don't think God views anybody that way, but we might view ourselves that way. We might view ourselves as broken and twisted and, 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 and second class and damaged goods. But even if we do, shouldn't that make us want to serve Him more and not less? I don't know about you, I've got a philosophy in life. I would rather have a lot of pretty good food than a little bit of excellent food. We're a little Caesar's house. Somebody say amen. I'd rather have a lot of pretty good food than a little bit of really good food. But I will say this. If you bring me pretty good food, you better bring me a lot of it. And if you bring me excellent food, you better bring me a lot of it. <laughs> In other words, I would say this. If we view our life as somehow degraded, as somehow lesser than then shouldn't we view it as though God should get more of it, not less of it? Shouldn't we say, I, I, I'm saying this, there, there is a false humility that we all indulge when we've sinned and messed up, where we say, well, God don't want me no more, and I'm just going to give up, I'm just going to quit, I'm just going to quit serving Him, and this and that. If we really believe that we were that damaged, we would be saying, so I need to serve Him more to make up for how I'm disappointed. Not I need to serve Him less. I don't say that to advocate for a, a system where we view ourselves as, as rating our level of spirituality and how we serve Him. I do that to drop a hand grenade in the middle of this delusion of self-pity we have where we say, I don't have to serve Him because I messed up and He wouldn't want that service anyway. That's not true. And if we really believe 
that our messing up has degraded our standing so much that would not make us serve Him less, it would make us serve Him more. The reality is this, He still deserves us to serve Him. I would say because of the path that awaits and the promise that abides, the priest that advocates, the precepts that apply, and finally, and I'm done, I'd say we need to get up and go on serving because of the peril that is assured to us if we do not. Look at verse 25. Samuel says this, But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Let me preach Toby for a minute. If you want to listen in, you can. Toby, you tell yourself that when you've sinned and messed up, the slate is already marred, so it can't get any worse. But Toby, you're a fool if you think that. Because every further bit that you draw on that slate is another thing you're going to have to answer for. We tell ourselves, well, I've already messed up. Can't get no worse. How many times you said it couldn't get worse only to watch it immediately get worse? We tell ourselves, well, you know, in for, in for a penny, in for a pound. I've already messed up. I've already sinned. I'm going to have to ask God's forgiveness. So why not just indulge my sin a little bit? I'll tell you why. Because though God forgives us, there are still consequences to sin that the pardon of God does not erase. There are certain things that if you see them, you can't unsee them. If you experience them, you can't unexperience them. There are certain things that if you harm another person, do something to another person, God may forgive you. They may not. Or even if they do, it cannot erase the things that have been done. In other words, sin has certain immutable consequences. Things that are not just miraculously erased because we are now right with God. And because of that, say, preacher, you're discouraging me. I mean, I've messed up. I've done wrong. Yeah, so why would you want to mess up further? Why would you want to persist down that road? Why would you throw caution? If you really are so devastated by the implications of your sin, why would you throw caution to the wind and persist in that disobedience? He points to two things. One, he says this, you continue down this path, you're going to be consumed by your sin. He says you shall be consumed. Consumed. It's going to swallow you up. Here's the problem. You can listen if you want. Me and Toby are talking again. They're going to put me in an institution. Amen. That's right. I probably belong in one. Here's the thing, Toby. You think that it doesn't matter if you, if you mark up the slate more. Because after all, you're just going to ask God's forgiveness anyway. But here's what you're not recognizing, Toby, is the fact of the matter is you might go so far that you give up on God altogether and your life becomes a shipwreck of faith. You think you're going to swim your way out of this, but so many people don't. So why would you think that you're any different than them? Oh, we could give example after example, couldn't we? We, we could point to empty spots in pews and say, There sat someone at one time that loved the Lord and walked with God, but they let sin in their life, and now today they're nowhere to be found. Some of them you could find them. You'd have to go down to the cemetery to do it. And we'd look at them as cautionary tales, and yet still we would indulge our flesh and say, it won't happen to me. The fact is, it will happen to you. It will happen to me. That's the reason God was warning them. He says, you will be consumed by sin's consequences. You you think you've got control of it. We all persist in sin because we think we've got it. When in reality, it has us. And we think we can quit any time, don't we? Man, I can't tell you the numbers of broken people I've sat across the table from that were telling me, preacher, I couldn't quit, that at one time said I could quit any time. I could quit any time. But now it's got its hooks in them and they can't quit it. Not only will you be consumed by sin's consequences, but notice this little tag on the end. 
He says, but if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed. And he could have stopped there. I mean, as far as the flow of the thought, he could have stopped there. But instead, he goes a little further. He says, both ye and your king. Isn't that interesting? In other words, Saul was representative of the disobedience and rebellion of the people. He was figurative for the people trying to exert their will above God's will. They chose Saul because he was tall and he was handsome and he was talented and he, the, like me, and, and they chose him because he was a winner. They said, that's the kind of guy we want as a king. And here's what they said to themselves. If we have him as king, nobody can touch us. Turns out Saul was a corrupt, carnal, craven individual who died in disgrace. You know why? Because looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. But they, in choosing a king, they thought somehow that king could protect them from the consequences of their sin. They said, if we have a king, it won't affect us. God says, I got news for you. If you go down this path, it's gonna, it's gonna consume, it's gonna swallow up you and your little king that you think is going to keep you from all these consequences. We could say this, not only would they be consumed, but they would be conquered by sin's consequences. We all think somehow we can prevent it from happening to us. And you can. You can. But not by indulging it. You can do it by asking forgiveness of it and turning away from it. If you try to play with that fire, it's going to spread. If you try to play with that sin, it's going to conquer you. You think you're strong enough I do sometimes, but the truth is we're not. We wouldn't be in this mess if we were strong. I, I mean, I'm careful how I say it. Everybody sins, everybody messes up. But I'm saying the reason that this happened is not because we're so awesome. It's not because we have control of everything. It's not because we've really got this thing of, of the Christian life nailed down. The whole reason we're in this mess is because of the infirmity of the flesh. How delusional it would be to say, but I'm still strong enough to keep it from wrecking my life. Oh, man. We would join a long chorus of people whose lives have been an utter despair and disappointment that voiced that same thing. That said, not me. Won't happen to me. Happened to them, but because of this or that or the other. How prideful we are. But we'd have to admit it could happen to us as well. Preacher, what do I do? I've messed up. So don't stay messed up. Come to the Lord. Confess it to Him. Ask forgiveness. Get up and go on, move on in the confidence and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you choose to stay in it, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So much so that it will destroy your life. But you don't have to let that happen. Because you, like Israel today, stand at the moment of decision. And you get to choose in this moment. Preacher, I've messed up. God wouldn't forgive me. And even if you forgive me, my life's still going to be a mess. Oh, no. He would even be willing to bless your life in spite of your mistakes, if you had committed unto Him in this day, in this moment. Just like He said to Israel, you go on and serve Me, I'll bless you and I'll bless your king. But if you don't, then your king cannot save you from it. And Likewise, you and I, we, if we go on, if we persist in our disobedience, we're just jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. We're going from a moment of heartache to a world of heartache. We don't have to live that way. Praise God, by His grace, we don't have to live that way. But the choice is ours. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. Listen, I want you to slip out of your seat if God dealt with your heart. Don't wait for the first note to be played. Come down here and find a place right now. I'll tell you how your flesh will do you. If your flesh can bully you for just a few moments, that's all it'll take. So don't listen to the flesh. Don't give it even a moment of attention. 
come down and find a place at this altar and let God have His way and will in your heart and in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.